Standing Ready, the podcast that gives you an inside look at the untold history of the VA's medical innovations with your hosts, Katie Della Sensory and Sean Spittler. All right. Hi, everybody. This is Katie. And Sean. Welcome back to Standing Ready. Today, we are going to be examining VA's cancer research, a fight that VA has been involved in since 1930. And the VA's first tumor research laboratory was established at the Heinz VA Research Hospital. When, when was this? 1930. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Radiologists, surgeons, and organ system specialists worked together. A tumor board met daily to examine and discuss patients, and there was even an active teaching program with local and national conferences in the latest cancer therapy equipment. So how about how far back does do we I mean you may not have these facts in front of you, but do we know how far back radiology studies go? So the history of radiology in medicine dates back to eighteen ninety five when the Whoa. first when yeah. Yeah. When the first discovered X-ray was was no kidding. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. What do you what do you mean by discovered X-ray? How did we? Oh look, there's an X-ray floating there. We can use that. Okay, radiology began in 1895 when Wilhelm Rumpel Stiltskin. Yeah. Well, uh, mm-hmm. when a when a German researcher accidentally <laughs> discovered X-rays, which is the type of radiation that can penetrate most solid objects, the German studying what happened when he passed an electrical current through different gases at low pressure. I bet you Rontgen Rontgen is kind of like where they get that radiation measure unit. I don't know if you saw Chernobyl. I did. But like that. I think everyone watched it. Yes. Like when they were talking about like, oh, it's not bad. It's just 200. Like Rontgen or what? Yeah. That's because the sensor didn't go up that high. Interesting. So yeah, it, uh, it uh, initially was sort of discovered in 1895, and then by 1832, it's a technology that's being used at VA. And then by 1937, you have the VA Administrator, General Frank Hines, who announces that VA would be joining the cancer fight by establishing research centers at six different clinics. And this was a time when, you know, after World War One, they were examining whether or not poison gases had a connection to cancer. So that really was sort of the origins um, kind of of, of this uh, research. And then quite quickly went on to examine the role between cigarette smoking and cancer, a link that was mm. proposed very early on, but wasn't actually discovered until a VA physician by the name of Dr. Oscar Auerbach, through his research, provided the definitive link between cancer and cigarette smoking. So that came from the VA, that yeah. definitive link as a mm-hmm, VA. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Related to his research, which len- then led to initial warnings by the Surgeon General in the 1960s. Hmm. So all of that is traced throughout VA's history. And when you think about it, is especially with lung cancer, is something that's very tied to veterans. You know, in World War right. II, they gave out cigarettes like candy, and yep. and that's really something that you start to see the effects of later on so it would it but do we should we say more accurately that today they hand out candy like cigarettes yeah i think that's that's (laughs) just candy forever like no maybe i can rephrase that you know in world war ii cigarettes were a part of the ration that's that's true it really was yeah. sort of ingrained, like just like food was, into what they received. So then you really start to have these 
you know, in the general population for sure, but particularly in the veteran population, come to fruition, which leads into Dr. Auerbach's groundbreaking research. I believe they also used to give out in the rations. I, I, I will fact check this before I put the episode out, but I believe they gave out comic books. I believe so. Big, yeah. There's a big thing with Captain America as part of that whole thing. And then they linked comic books to cancer and so they had to stop. <laughs> um, but no. <laughs> Back on track. So today we are sitting down with uh, the current iteration of VA groundbreaking researchers to examine oncology, uh, and that's Dr. Michael Kelly, who comes to us from the Durham VA Medical Center. All right, let's do it. All right, so Dr. Michael Kelly is the director of VA's National Oncology Program and professor of medicine at the Duke University Medical School. Dr. Kelly, thank you for joining us on Standing Ready today. As the director of VA's National Oncology Program, can you give us an overview of the work that you do? So first of all, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm very pleased to be here on your podcast. I think the overview is, is that we provide care for, for veterans we're diagnosed with cancer, and we do that in a very comprehensive fashion. Uh, I'm a medical oncologist, which is a type of cancer specialist which uses medications, so that's the area that we focus on mostly, but we go across the spectrum. Um, we don't do cancer screening, uh, so patients who don't yet have cancer is not uh, the core of what we do. We collaborate with others uh, that do that, but anything from a diagnosis through the end of treatment Cancer is a multidisciplinary um, area, so there are many different specialists who may play a role, um, and we help to coordinate those areas. Um, and then we have a lot of work that we're doing in precision oncology, which is a type of uh, personalized um, medicine for patients with cancer. Um, we do um, data, so there's um, a cancer registry that is nationwide. We um, make sure that we identify all the patients who have cancer so that we can understand patterns of uh, development of cancer in both in veterans and in uh, the population of the nation as a whole and understand how to best take care of them. So that's a lot of different things and I've probably left out three or four. You've talked a little bit about precision oncology. Can you explain um, to our listeners a little bit more about that and how that's grown within VA? Yeah, so I think you know, what does precision means is this concept of tailoring uh, care for a particular patient. And you know, when we talk about that for oncology patients or patients who have cancer, that means not only the characteristics of the patient, so you know, sex, age, um, other medical conditions, uh, what medications you're taking, uh, but other characteristics about you. So it might be what genes you inherited from your parents, um, and more specifically, more frequently, it means what gene alterations or other um, characteristics there are of the tumors itself, right? So tumors can be um, what's called heterozygous, meaning that they can be different in different parts of it, but they have some characteristics which are, we think are sort of present in most of the tumor cells or all the tumor cells that start very early on in the the process that leads to cancer, these changes occur relatively early, and those are the types of changes that we're looking for. So and that's just the big concept is, is how can you tailor this for this patient? And in doing that tailoring, we understand that the therapy is more likely to be effective. It's more likely to be 
specific or targeted uh, to the problem and not to everything else, so you have fewer side effects. So those are the two characteristics that we're looking for from precision medicine in general. And in oncology, it means understanding what's causing the, the cancer in a particular individual and how does the, the individual's uh, constitution, if you will, uh, you know, contribute to that environment. So this is uh, DNA, uh, sometimes RNA, um, protein. We've looked at protein markers for decades. Um, so this started um, in, in some time ago uh, in terms of the, the uh, oncology practice. Um, it's in the, in the late 1990s. There was a, um, a drug which was developed called um, Matinib or Gleevec is one of the trade names for it. And it was used in a, a disease called chronic myelogenous leukemia or CML. Um, and it was really a, a advance of the sort of the dream proportions where uh, it, it, it works really well where the prior treatments didn't work very well and it had many fewer side effects. Um, and so it changed this, uh, this condition of um, a disease which was uh, invariably fatal to one where you just take this pill and it's now a chronic condition for most people. So that, that paradigm has been accelerated since then, and it really came about in terms of more common solid tumors like lung cancer and prostate cancer and colon cancer and all these others uh, more recently. And it was during this uh, period uh, where the uh, White House had an initiative that they announced in early 2016 called the Cancer Moonshot Initiative. And that was uh, led um, by now President Biden uh, to bring together many different partners, many of them in the federal agencies. Uh, each federal agency was uh, requested to uh, review what they could contribute to advancing uh, the um, progress which was uh, being made, but to accelerate the rate at which was, that progress is being made uh, for patients uh, who have cancer. And that is a time when VA did that um, evaluation to try to understand what we could contribute and to see if there was something that uh, that we should be doing that we weren't already doing. And that was, part of that was precision oncology. So we had started this as a regional program um, and it was serving a small number of medical centers. And we took that and made it a national program very rapidly um, and started to deliver expert um, services in conjunction with this a service of, of sequencing patients' um, tumors. So first you have to understand, you have to get the piece of the tumor sample, it has to go to a laboratory, it undergoes sequencing so you can see what variations are there, what mutations are in the cancer, and then you have to interpret the result. So both of those are challenging. There's a lot of reasons why sequencing tumor samples are challenging, but interpreting it is also extremely challenging because there are many different genes involved, and the signals that are coming from the sequencing results um, are, are, you have to understand it, right? You have to go, again, you have to um, understand what the basic scientists are, are telling you about the, the work that they're doing uh, when, when that data comes to the clinician. So we have a service, a consult service, uh, where any um, patient in the whole system, their, their physician who um, has seen the patient for their cancer diagnosis, uh, can do this, can request this test, uh, and that goes off to a, 
to a sequencing laboratory and that result comes back um, to, to the doctor and shared with the patient, but it also comes back to a central location where uh, there are experts and those experts can help that doctor interpret uh, that result and they can do so sort of on a case-by-case -case basis as the doctor asks for help. So that's as we set that up in 2016 and, and then have been uh, you know, growing outwards from there. Um, there's uh, a partnership that we set up. Uh, we set up with that the Prostate Cancer Foundation came to us and offered uh, this partnership to do uh, intensive um, uh, research efforts around prostate cancer and selected some VA sites to to fund to do research, do clinical trial research um, to advance the understanding of how to treat patients that have different gene changes in their tumors and specifically for prostate cancer. So that's led to uh, like Bruce Montgomery at the University of Washington and uh, Puget Sound VA and Matt Reddick at uh, UCLA and the um, Greater Los Angeles VA Medical Center uh, have been instrumental in, in developing uh, this network of sites that can help uh, test new theories about how we can treat patients better with prostate cancer that have different changes. And they've um, started up a couple of trials, very cutting edge trials, uh, asking uh, really great questions, um, and then organize a group of these different centers to, to work together to, to combine their patients um, and to offer them uh, participation in a clinical trial that not only might have benefit for them, but would definitely produce uh, information uh, that is going to help us know how to treat every prostate cancer uh, after that. So that's how we got started. And that's expanded now to lung cancer. Uh, we have a, this is what we call a system of excellence in lung cancer. We um, started last year and uh, some other um, activities that we've launched in the last uh, two years um, to make sure that uh, there is a access uh, to the best uh, cancer care possible throughout the system. So one of the, the challenges that we have in VA is that our population is more rural than the country as a whole, um, significantly more rural. So almost a third of, of veterans who are enrolled in VA healthcare live in, in rural areas. And the options that are available for them uh, is not as good, right? A lot of our Rural healthcare facilities are under uh, financial stress. Uh, some of them are just closed completely. Um, and so what we are trying to do is to make sure that uh, whenever there's an advance that we make that available throughout the country. When we started in 2016, our um, precision oncology program, this program of doing the testing and providing expert care, uh, we tracked very closely where the veterans were that were getting that service um, what was happening to those veterans and was it the same thing happening to those veterans, whether they lived near cities or they lived in more rural areas. And that was a focus for us because we wanted to make sure that we weren't creating new disparities. Um, and, and that, uh, I think we were extremely successful in that regard, that there was actually no difference at all in terms of the utilization or access to those services. Um, and we've taken that to the next step, which is actually having our expert physicians uh, available to provide care uh, for veterans wherever they live. Uh, so we've set up what's called, we would call tel the tele-oncology service, uh, which uses telehealth, which we're all very familiar with now uh, because 
hey, it's COVID and everyone's doing it, right? But we started this uh, uh, before COVID and we actually had a plan uh, that has just been accelerated uh, significantly because uh, there was more understanding, I think, and acceptance of telehealth. Um, but we are now able to provide an expert physician uh, to uh, be part of the care team for uh, patients in rural areas uh, that wouldn't necessarily have a, the same level of um, expertise available for them in their community. Um, and, and, you know, VA is, is a, um, a collection of relatively small hospitals, right? We have a lot of hospitals, but none of them are huge hospitals uh, compared to some of the major medical centers out there. Um, so this is a way that we can sort of co collect our different expertise and, and deliver it uh, where it's needed. So when you have a patient with colon cancer, you hope that that patient would be seen by a colon cancer expert. And that's what we can do through this service. So, so I think what I'm saying is, is that the, the uh, level of precision also requires the right people, right? You have to have the right team members uh, to be able to deliver that, that precision. Um, and it, it improves the efficiency um, and the uh, reduces the cost, actually, when you have people who really are expert in that area because they know ex exactly what to do and they don't have to you know, spend a lot of time figuring out um, or reviewing um, the, the latest treatments because they're they're probably contributing to them, right? Yeah. Right, so that's a, that was a long answer. You actually kind of bled into my next question a little bit, which was, can you talk about how technology has improved cancer treatment? And my example I was gonna bring up was telehealth. Um, but I also wanted to, to talk a little bit about 3D printing and, and maybe how that's uh, impacting cancer treatment. And then I'll, if we have a chance, uh, and we don't have to answer this now or at all, uh, depending on um, kind of your experience with it, but I'd like to talk about, if possible, CRISPR, if you're familiar with CRISPR and, and if that's going to have any implications in the future. And then um, I think they're called adjunct treatments, things that kind of help help the existing cancer treatment, like fasting. I've heard a lot about fasting and how that can help the, the patient um, not have as severe symptoms during, uh, during their treatment. So maybe you can talk about some of those things. Uh, radiation oncologists have many different three-dimensional considerations in their treatment planning. Uh, you know, they use beams of highly charged or high, highly energetic um, rays, if you will, or, or uh, electromagnetic magnetic fields to deliver energy to certain regions of the body. And it, it may there may be some consideration there. And then it's in terms of rehabilitation. So this is a part of oncology is, is, is that uh, when you have some type of treatment, you might lose some functionality and then there's the undergo rehabilitation. So there may be some role there for 3D printing. CRISPR is actually a really interesting and very powerful technology. Uh, it's it's basically gene editing, and it, you can do it on uh, whole cells and, and maybe living organisms. And uh, this is uh, part of uh, something that might happen in in oncology, um, but it has some limitations. So, uh, you know, gene therapy for cancer is not a new concept, right? We what we do now is is actually some form of gene therapy. Not that we change the genes, but we understand what the genes are, so we know which molecules to use, so small molecules that are not gene-changing molecules like CRISPR is, 
but they interact with the proteins, right? So, so we're, we're all about proteins mostly, right? Our, our, the, all the functionalities that, that happen, our muscles, our proteins, um, the genes have the instructions in them that is made into the proteins. Um, and so what, what we're doing more so is, is understanding the gene changes and then using a drug which interacts with proteins mostly, okay? So what, what CRISPR would do would be to actually change the genes so that it would change what protein is being made. The, the trick there is, is that you have to basically, you have to change almost every, if not every cell uh, and the efficiency of CRISPR is not 100% or even close to it, especially in, in human uh, beings. I, I wouldn't think that it would be even close to that. So it's used, I think, uh, it has been used successfully for genetic conditions where if you change a few cells, that's enough to be able to give you a little bit of functionality where before you didn't have any, and that lack of functionality was causing a disease. But in, in cancer, I... I can't see that CRISPR is going to be used in a, in a therapeutic way, but you know, don't, I'm maybe just not imaginative enough uh, or don't understand the technology enough. It is a very powerful tool for preclinical work because now what you can do is, is you can go through and say, okay, here's a cancer and it has um, this gene change. You can go through and basically knock out every other gene in the whole cell and ask which ones interact with that gene, right? And this becomes a very powerful tool. So this is, this is um, uh, a, um, an interaction which is used therapeutically all the time. So for example, going back to prostate cancer, um, there are a group of genes that control a certain me uh, method of DNA repair called homologous recombination. So that those that group of genes, um, if you have a defect in any one of them, your cells are not as good at fixing certain DNA strand breaks, and but they that they do okay uh, because there's another pathway which is called PARP, um, and that uh, pathway is is able to fix the the DNA well enough. But if you have a drug that inhibits that the, the PARPs, uh, it's called a PARP inhibitor, um, then uh, those two things together cause the cells to die, okay? And this is exactly what is happening in prostate cancer. So there's a fraction of men who have either inherited or acquired in their tumor cells a defect in one of those um, genes in the homologous recombination uh, set, and their tumor cells grow and body grows and works okay. But if you give them a drug that inhibits the PARP pathway, uh, then their tumors die. But the rest of the cells say, oh, I'm still okay because I don't have that mutation or I don't have as bad of a mutation uh, in, in the homologous um, repair gene. So this, so, and and that, was, that can be discovered by CRISPR, right? So you can go through and, and find out which other genes interact with each other um, and so th this is, can be a very powerful. And there are many other ways that CRISPR is used. Um, all right, so CRISPR, so you did uh, 3D printing, CRISPR, uh, and fasting. then fasting. Okay. Uh, so nutrition as a method of 
managing patients with cancer has been done extensively. Um, and the, if there are any effects, they are modest or in, imperceptible. Um, so as a way of treating cancer, treating patients with cancer, it's not clear that that is um, very useful. Uh, that said, if you have cancer and you're losing weight, that's a bad prognostic factor, right? But that's not something that, that you can necessarily change. And if, if you try to change that, even by giving people like intravenous therapies, intravenous nutrition, I mean, um, that also doesn't really help. But uh, nutrition and cancer development, so the, so the risk of getting cancer and nutrition, are there, there, there's some really classic examples of how those interact. So first of all, uh, calorie uh, limitation, so it's basically starvation, is a great preventer of cancer. During the Second World War, uh, when there were many, many people who were starving, uh, the cancer rate went down dramatically. Um, and how that works is not entirely clear. Some of them are related to, um, to um, hormonal therapies. So uh, some, some hormonal therapies are um, sorry, hormonal mechanisms. So, for example, like breast cancer, maybe that um, when you have more more fat tissues, that increases the production of certain hormones, including estrogens, that can stimulate uh, breast cancer development. Uh, but I, I've not heard about the, the interaction with um, fasting and side effects of cancer treatments. Um, could, could be. I don't, I don't know. Fair enough. Thank you so much. You mentioned this a little bit, but can you talk about kind of just in general what it's like for you to work with veteran patients? Um, and, you know, you mentioned that rural urban divide and um, how you have worked to kind of uh, you know, make a loving, level playing field. So can you just talk a little bit about um, the veterans you, you see on a, on a basis? I mean, I, I've worked with veterans... Uh, uh, for a long time. I um, enjoy uh, all the interactions that I've had uh, with veterans and um, I sort of feel like I'm like uh, maybe a groupie, right? Because it's like I, I was in the public health service, which is one of the uniformed services, but I wasn't in the military, right? So I'm sort of like a, a hanger on in that regard. Um, but I've interacted with, with veterans for a big uh, part of my uh, my life, right? So, in, uh, starting from medical school, uh, when worked in the VA in Ann Arbor, and uh, then residency here in Durham, and I was at um, the Navy Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, before it became uh, Walter Reed, um, including during um, Desert Storm when they were deploying. So, I've interacted with a lot of uh, different people and different parts of uh, the military uh, uh, career, both in the Department of Defense and uh, the VA quite a bit, um, but it, I think you know for me it's it's uh, been um, probably the most rewarding part of the uh, career that I've had is is interacting with veterans by telehealth because um, it it um, allows me to be able to share um, my expertise with people who probably wouldn't have an opportunity to benefit from that. And uh, 
first of all, as a, as a group, I mean, they're, they're very respectful and uh, thankful. Um, and there's nothing that makes you feel better when you can help somebody out and somebody who, um, who you sort of have a uh, connection with um, and sort of makes you feel like, uh, hey, this is, this is really, um, this is what life's about, right? Is, is helping other people and being part of something which is bigger than you. Um, and that's what uh, I really feel like when I'm uh, participating in this program is, is that this is a big uh, operation that we're putting together. Um, and the, uh, the reason we're doing it is because of the people we're connecting with on the other end. So that's that's been um, one of the, the most satisfying things that I've done as a physician. Using that as a jumping off point, can you tell us about some of your successes that you've had? Lots of successes, right? So first of all, you know, just I told you some of this in terms of the uh, precision oncology program when we launched that in 2016 to, to basically go from zero to 60 in uh, you know, less than six months um, in terms of being able to provide access to uh, this service really quickly and to do it in a way which is comprehensive and uh, at a very high level. Um, so that was uh, one area of, of great success, I would say. Um, getting uh, the different components of the, um, the VA to work together, right? Because VA is a big um, organization and oncology touches on many of those um, and sort of to, to have some coordination between the different um, partners that uh, we work with. So, um, you know, I already mentioned surgery and radiation, but we, there are many other uh, medical specialties. And then we've had great um, um, support and, and um, insight, I would say, from our colleagues in the Office of Research and Development um, and to be able to, to launch a, uh, a initiative which is now going to touch um, a huge number of veterans. So part of what we've done in the lung cancer precision oncology is I, I uh, mentioned earlier that we, we don't do uh, screening, but we decided that there was one area where we needed to do uh, some effort in screening and that was lung cancer because the uh, number of patients uh, who were getting access to lung cancer screening was way too low. And so we decided that uh, we needed to um, try to, to jumpstart that um, initiative. And I think we've been pretty successful at getting that started. Um, it's, it still has a ways to go because it, it, we're talking about you know, hundreds of thousands, if not uh, over a million veterans who would have uh, you know, consideration for possibly getting screened for lung cancer. Um, but uh, the infrastructure that we've put together in really less than a year uh, to be able to do that type of work um, is has been uh, coming along so nicely um, and to get the different um, uh, experts and and really just uh, the whole team together across the entire country right um, to be able to, to offer that to veterans and and have a plan to, to, to get there uh, that's been a huge I, I think that's a huge success so so I can't say right now it's a success because the patients haven't gotten it yet, but I can tell you that it's going to come uh, in the very near future. And so the, the work that's gone into putting that together has been a great success.
Um, so I think that's something. Um, we've, we're, we're now um, uh, amplifying our tele-oncology service. Uh, so we started and, and a few other people started around the country and now that's one nationalized service and you know, it works with medical centers across the country. Um, but that is, is really starting to roll as well. So we're, um, we're up to about, I think we're working in about 10 uh, different facilities now or expected to be in twice that many by the end of the end of the calendar year. And then next year we'll probably continue to expand. Um, so that I think is a huge success that we've been able to to grow at such a great rate um, and that the, and to um, fill in um, the demand as best we can uh, while we are while we're expanding. Um, what else? There's, uh, so, I mean, I think in my, my um, sort of, I guess, uh, role as the, as the national program director, I think one of the things that, uh, that I always think about is, is how we can contribute to the national effort as well. And there are some efforts within VA that I think are huge successes. Um, and some of those are uh, being able to contribute data. Um, so one of the um, methods that we use to help uh, accelerate discovery is, is to share our data with others so that uh, they can look at it and look at for new insights. Um, and uh, I think we're making some, some great progress there um, as well in terms of making our data more available so, so that uh, individuals can, can study it. So we, we, we look at it, but you know, we're, there are different um, insights, uh, ideas uh, that can be tested in, in the data that's available in VA. Uh, and that's something that I think we um, are very ha happy to be able to share um, because uh, that, uh, that data is, can be very valuable to understanding how to treat the next veteran who, who walks in or the next American who walks in somewhere else. So VA has been researching and studying cancer for almost 100 years now. That program began in the 1920s. What does it mean to you to be a part of that tradition and kind of reflecting on that? What, is, what are you excited about for the future? Wow, yeah. Um, it's, it's quite humbling, actually, to, to think about the discoveries and the, the work that went before um, some of the uh, seminal uh, clinical trials have been done in VA. Uh, I think uh, what I hear from my research colleagues is that uh, the first, uh, I guess, multi-site clinical trial was done in VA. Um, I remember learning in, in my training program uh, some key clinical studies and uh, and and they were they were called the VA um, you know study uh, there was a VA um, uh, cancer study group at one point and uh, in in small cell lung cancer for example there's a staging system that is called the VA staging system that's still used uh, clinically at least in, in terms of the practical uh, manner so uh, I think that's something that again helps you understand how you you are part of something that's bigger than you are when you work in VA. Um, it's in some ways it, it, it's, um, I wouldn't say humbling, but more um, almost daunting, right? To think of, okay, there's, how, how am I gonna make an impact and everything like this? Um, 
you know, how can how can you possibly contribute to something where there's all this storied past and all of this um, history that went into it? But when you when you break it down, it's 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 everyone can make a little bit of progress, and it's that little bit of progress together that moves the the VA and the VA oncology efforts forward. It's not it's not like one person who's, who drives this, right? It's it's a it's a group effort and um, I think uh, Rachel Ramoni, who's the, the head of the Office of Research and Development at VA, uh, says over and over again, and, and I always like it when she says it because she said it with such a nice cheery uh, voice, is, you know, teamwork is the dream work, uh, right? Our teamwork makes the dream work. Um, and so uh, that is, uh, I think, the, the, what really is happening here. Um, so that I see more of that in the future. Um, as we come together to try to, to lay out, uh, you know, what it is we want to have happen to veterans. So this is extremely important is that, um, you know, you have to have uh, some plan for what you want to happen to veterans when they come in with, a, with cancer, um, that it, the oncology field is, is quite complex and it's changing rapidly. And those changes can't happen across a big system like VA unless there's a plan. So I see that we'll be doing more of that is that we'll be using our experts to help um, provide recommendations for what should be happening uh, more frequently. And then we'll try to, to we'll build a system in which we can provide those pieces of advice to uh, everyone across the entire system uh, through electronic health record uh, tools, which provide decision support. Um, it doesn't replace the, the physician in any means, right? So there's no cookbook for, for medical um, oncology. There's no cookbook for how to take care of patients with cancer. You need to have some individualization and that happens through, uh, through the provider team. Um, but for, there, there should be some plan as to what usually happens. Um, and if there's variation in that, then, then I think that's an area for, um, for improvement that where we can look at that and say, well, why is that? Is that you know, because there's something biologically different uh, between different patients, is that, uh, or is there something between their tumors, or is this, or there's knowledge gaps or just practice differences? Anyway, so I I, I see that um, that VA will continue to move um, in in a uh, innovative fashion. That is, you know, little steps here and there, and and not huge jumps, right? That I don't think that's the way you're going to to see. Um, things change. Uh, there's been a huge change in, in, um, in the immunotherapies. So I, we didn't talk about this, but uh, immunotherapies have really had a huge impact. And you could say that, okay, well, you know, 10 years ago, I didn't see that coming. Um, I don't think anybody saw that coming, or not too many people. And that, that, that change is something that we were able to rapidly adapt to and implement. And that's what we have to be prepared for because we don't know what's coming next. There will be advances. You can, we can go through it. We can go through CRISPR. We can go through proteomics. Uh, we can go through metabol metabolomics. metabolomics. Um, and, uh, and, and every other form of, of uh, possible advance. Um, but what actually comes forward, it, you can't really predict and how it comes forward and how you implement it, uh, are, those are all very important things. So I think it's really important for us to be prepared to have the system 
to be able to implement whatever the best practice is when it gets here. And that's, and that's where everyone can play a role. Well, Dr. Michael Kelly, thank you so much for joining us on our program. Thank you very much. 